Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on the hump day at us in the yard. One more day closer to college football. We had some football on Monday night. Some of you watched it. I didn't. Watch the, I guess I watched a few minutes of it. And uh, Ole Miss, of course, beats Louisville as expected. You know, many of you uh, begin to panic. It's uh, it's crazy. One game into the season, and everybody's like, "Oh, relax, enjoy the season." It's like <laughs> I'm not going to get on here and preach today. We're going to we're going to talk a little bit about season openers in this first segment of the show, but it's. There's only so much you could tell, but it's always, always so interesting to me to see the dynamic of the collective Mississippi State fan base psyche. It just it it boggles the mind sometimes. It really does. I love all you guys to death. I absolutely do. Even those who don't agree with me, those that I don't agree with, it's okay. It's all right. Long as we all unite under the uh, the maroon and white, the uh, rest of our differences can kind of you know be settled. But um, you know, it's interesting. It's like you know, nothing motivates. Mississippi State or Ole Miss people more than seeing the other side do well. You know, just that's just kind of how it is. Life and times in a rivalry. But it's incredible. Like we go out and kind of have a lackluster performance, to say the least, but we win on Saturday. And then Ole Miss goes out and looks pretty good, you know, from what I saw. I mean, I know in the second half, I know the Louisville running game kind of got to him a little bit. It's like Ole Miss may have worn down a little bit, but. Uh, you know, people are already ready to play the Egg Bowl. Like, mentally, we're already preparing the Egg Bowl. And, and it's, uh, you know, we're not going to play yet. We've got a lot of football left to be played between now and the Egg Bowl. And so, uh, NC State, that's your opponent this weekend. Had a chance to transcribe Dave Doring's uh, Monday press conference interview. A lot of respect. He says that, you know, coach speak, I guess, uh, you know, goes unnoticed. But, uh, you know, Doring says, hey, you know, played against Mike Leach. He was four years at Kansas, and he goes, you know, that's back when Leach and them were in their sweet spot at Texas Tech. And he said he thinks Graham Harrell was a quarterback. He's like, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. They were throwing for 5,000 yards a year. Um, and that's probably some truth. And so, yeah, he, he has seen the Mike Leach offense up close and personal, four years at Kansas. And then not to mention there are a couple of guys on the staff there at NC State. Uh, I guess what's um, – Ruffin McNeil is over there. There's a couple guys over there. So there's some familiarity with, with the concepts. And so they'll have a defensive game plan to try to slow things down. And like Dave Doring says, I mean, there's not a lot of surprises with Mike Leach. Just because you know the formations and you think you know the route tree doesn't, doesn't really mean anything. You still got to go out there and make plays because, you know, there's so much to this offense that, you know, that there's not a ton of formations. There's not a, a ton of, uh, a, you know, things that you can necessarily prepare for because so much of it is based it's kind of a read and react type deal just only so much you can do and so it'll be interesting I know the the line with Vegas opened up as a pick them and then state was a favorite that NC State was bottom line is this game is going to be what we expected to be pretty much a toss-up game I think it's going to be a close game I think I saw earlier today that Bill Connolly projects it to be a 28-23 win for NC State Honestly, I think it's within a touchdown either way. I just don't know if I can call it today. You know, if Mississippi State goes out and plays like they're capable of playing, I think State wins the game. NC State comes out there and gets a couple turnovers early and gets a short field and, you know, gets a lead on us. It might be a long day for us. They can shorten the game on you because they run the football. We're going to preview them a little bit later in the show, kind of share a few things about them. But – I think it's kind of important to understand this is going to be a much different 
attack, I guess we would expect. You know, the 3-3-5 defense is a little different. Dave Doring says they don't do nearly as much, uh, you know, front-line movement like we do. We do a lot of stunts and twists and that sort of stuff, a lot of slants with the line uh, to, to kind of free up the backers. And so while, you know, the alignment is the same, schematically we're a lot different. Coverage schemes are pretty similar. But it'll be interesting to kind of see how that, that breaks loose. And, you know, that's like people say, well, you know, they play a 3-3-5, so we should have uh, some type of advantage. Well, they've got the same one. You know, there's just – it's the same for everybody. It's just really two very different offenses. Very, very different. Again, we'll, we'll, we'll preview some NC State stuff uh, kind of later in the show. Now, I want to thank our good friends at Bulldog Burger Company. I, I love being affiliated with those folks because, you know, I like to kind of glean some greatness from other people when I can. Bulldog Burger Company is a great place to do business, a great place to eat, a great place to work. If you're looking for a job, reach out to them. Bulldog Burger Company, part of the great family, the Eat With Us uh, family of restaurants that have served the Golden Triangle many, many years. They, listen, they know how to feed you. They know how to take care of you. You don't, you don't stay in business as long as they have without knowing how to take care of customers. And that's what they do. And let's be honest, customer service is kind of a dying art form in America. And perhaps worldwide, I don't, I don't get out a whole lot of the, out of the country, but I know this, that customer service is, uh, you know, it's not what it once was. And that's why one of the reasons I enjoy going to Bulldog Burger Company is I know that there's going to be some consistency with the food, the atmosphere, and the service. Because that's what they expect. It's not like, hey, let's just throw a bunch of people out here and hope for the best. No, they train their employees. They, they make sure that everybody understands their expectations for customer experience, and that's what you're going to get when you go to Bulldog Burger Company. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive right here in Start Vegas, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo, and the brand new one, Lake Harbor Drive in Ridgeland. Still getting rave reviews from you guys about that one. Not that anybody should be surprised. Again, these people know what they're doing. Our, our friend Ian Few down there doing a great job down in Ridgeland. Enjoy it. Go and get the spring rolls for the appetizer. Get that chocolate shake to go. Have the full meal experience. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. All right, let's talk a little bit about home, about season openers. You know, it's um, there's only so much you can tell. A lot of times you don't know the quality of the competition. And, you know, a lot of times with the gift of hindsight, you can look back in hindsight and say, man, that was a bad loss. Or you know what? That win actually looked to be a little bit better than we thought on the surface. But uh, I wanted to go back a few years and just kind of look at maybe what we learned in the season openers and see maybe what that taught us. And listen, I'm not going back to the 40s or anything like that. I'm, I'm going to start with 2009. We're going to start with Dan Mullen's first year. You may recall this. I know many of you longtime Bulldog fans do. The, you know, the very first play of the Dan Mullen era – was basically an end-around pass. We, we pitch it to Bumpus, who started as a true freshman, and then he attempted to throw a touchdown pass. I believe it was to O'Neill Wilder. But really, that it wasn't just the play and execution thereof. It was really a message to you guys, is that we're going to be a much more exciting brand of offense. You know, we'd had the West Coast offense and you know it, it, the Ralph Coast offense. You know, it was one of those things where, you know, we were so offensively challenged. You know, when Sylvester Croom was here, you know, Anthony Dixon did a great job for us and just didn't have a lot of help around him. He would probably disagree because AD is a great teammate. But, you know, we we were a different breed of animal under Dan Mullen offensively. And Anthony Dixon, of course, had his best year of his career that year. But I thought, you know, 
you play Jackson State, and you remember we had that really bad rainstorm to start the whole thing, and uh, people had to go into the tunnels and that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, we ended up having a losing year that year, and I don't think anybody was really shocked at that. But we were a better football team that year. You know, we, we finished the year, you know, five and seven very easily. Could have been seven and five. And you know the ones I'm talking about, right? You know, so you, you lose you lose out of Auburn, you beat Vandy, and we lose to, to LSU 30 to 26. That's the one, you know, when Chad Jones had the long punt return and it seemed like we could never catch him. And then late in the ball game, we had a chance to win. And I just couldn't get that pitch off to AD, and we lose, you know, 30 to 26 in Starkville. We should have won the ball game. But even though we lost, I think we all felt like, you know what, this is a different day and time. Because ordinarily, LSU would have came in here and just run all over us, and they didn't. I think we began to really that, – that's the game I think we all began to really gain some confidence in the direction of Dan Mullen. Uh, then you lose to Louisiana Tech, 42-31. They, and they were a good team that year. We lose to Houston, 31-24. And you remember we had some trouble with the zone read. Tyson Lee had a couple fumbles. But the, the play to me that was so significant is you remember Tyson Lee connects with Leon Berry inside the Houston 20, and they rule Tyson over the line of scrimmage. And Dan should have reviewed it, and he'd mentioned in the postgame, yeah, I should, should challenge the play. That ended up changing the complexion of the ball game. Then we, we go to Murfreesboro and we beat Manny Diaz in Middle Tennessee 27-6. Of course, that proved to be an audition for Manny Diaz as he joined the staff the next year after Carl Torbush left. Uh, we lose to Tim Tebow in Florida here. That's the Jonathan Banks two-pick game. And even though we lost it, you know, it's a, it's a great Florida team, we went out there and acquitted ourselves really well. We beat Kentucky in Lexington as we should, 31-24, and lose to Alabama 31-3. And we got beat up pretty good there at uh, Fayetteville, in Little Rock, excuse me, 42-21. And then we win the Egg Bowl. And even though we didn't have a winning season, we won the Egg Bowl. It really felt like, you know what, hey, we, we're definitely headed in the right direction. We got the right guy. We just didn't know what to expect the rest of the way. But we felt like we had something to feel good about. All right, switching over to 2010. You know, we opened the year and we blast Memphis 49-7. to You know, Again, I'm a firm believer in this, and I know I may be in the minority. I know there are a lot of true Maroon fans that agree with me. You know, we should never lose to a CUSA team or a Sunbelt team or an equivalency. You know, I'm not even big on the AAC either. I know some of you guys are, but, like, we shouldn't lose to Memphis. I mean, it's not like they were in the 70s. It was a much different deal back then. You know, Memphis and Southern Miss were actually pretty good in the 70s. In the early 80s. But, uh, you know, we should always win that game. 49-7. And I know some people are saying, Steve, you know, we play them next week. Yes, I do, and we should win the game. All right, so then we uh, we lose to Auburn, and that's a game we should have won. That's the uh, that's the Cam Newton game. And, uh, you know, poor Leon Barry drops that pass. It would have set up a game-time field goal. Ended up being one of the last plays he had for us. It was, uh, it was awful. Hated that for him. But um, – that was a Thursday night game. Nico Willie had the big pick. We had Cam Newton really kind of hemmed up. But, um, again, I think we felt like, you know what, we got a chance to compete with anybody. We go down to Baton Rouge, we get beat pretty good 29-7. Then we beat George at our place. And I remember like it was yesterday, we're driving down the field and Chris Ralph is just running over Georgia. You know, the big play early in the ball game, Nico Whitley just destroys Washon Ely at the goal line. They fumble in the end zone. We recover. But we're just, we're just running down the field trying to put the game away. And I remember when Chris Ralph dropped back the pass. 
You heard this collective, no, and then he hits Arcedo Clark for the touchdown. It was a different day and time, for sure. We were, we were changing as a team and as a program right before our very eyes. And, of course, we blast our Alcorn State 49-16. We go down to Houston, beat them pretty good 47-24. We go to the Swamp. And you remember their kicker got hurt and their punter had to take the kick at the end? I remember Chris White having a huge game for us. That's, that's the thing that I remember It's Chris White. It seemed like every time on a possession play, Chris White was always around the football. Then we struggle the next week, but we beat UAB 29-24 on homecoming. And I remember as great as it was to have won a couple road games, you know, that UAB game when people were thinking, you know, why do we always play up and down in our competition? That was kind of a harbinger of things to come with Dan Mullen. Uh, then we beat Kentucky again at our place, as we should, 24-17. Then we lose to Tuscaloosa, 30-10. We lose to Arkansas, 38-31. A ball game we arguably should have won there. That's the one, if you remember, you know, Vic Boward. Man, Vic's such a great player for us. Fighting for that extra yard, falls and fumbles uh, inside the 10, and then they score. And then we end up having that whole thing at the end, the debacle and the dummy cadence. And uh, we snapped the ball, and we lose 38-31. Arkansas was a really good team that year, too. I remember Niles Davis fumbling the football, and I thought Bobby Petrino was going to kill him. I mean, I thought he was absolutely going to kill him. All right, so then we uh, we go down to Jacksonville, Florida, and we win the Gator Bowl. And, and arguably, probably you know one of the biggest bowl wins in our history. And not just because you know, it was Michigan, not just because it was the Gator Bowl, even though we had never won down there. It was a helmet sticker win. wasn't a great Michigan team, but it was still Michigan. I mean, athletically, you know what they had. But it's one of those deals too. You look at this year and you thought, you know what, we we are, we are definitely a legit program. We are no longer, you know, just an also ran in the SEC. End up with a nine and four record, and and uh, again could have very easily, you know, won a couple more of those ball games. That's what's so incredible to look at in hindsight. Is you know what, you know. Outside of the Alabama game that year, we had a chance to win every game. We had a couple we won closely that we arguably could have lost. I guess LSU got after us pretty good too. But outside of that, you look at that and say, you know what, I, you know, the cream of the crop in the SEC West got to us, but everybody else, we're right there with them. But again, you couldn't tell a lot just from the Memphis game other than the fact that uh, we ought to be able to score. 2011 was a little bit of an interesting year for us. You know, we come out there and we blast Memphis again, 59-14. Think we all feel like, okay, we're, we're doing good. And then we go to Auburn and we lose 41-34. You remember that's the one when Chris Ralph is stopped at the goal line? That's a ball game, too. We got out to the big lead and we kind of – similar to this past weekend, we get to the big lead. Next thing you know, we let Auburn and kind of a pedestrian quarterback get back in the ball game. We didn't play real good defense that game. Uh, we lose to LSU 19-6. And we struggled and beat Louisiana Tech 26-20. Sound familiar? Uh, then we lose at Georgia 24-10. Darius Slay had the pick six. I believe that's our only touchdown in the game. We go to Birmingham. We beat those guys 21-3. Didn't, accept, didn't play exceptionally well. I remember Tyler Russell um, made some big plays for us late. We lose at South Carolina. Excuse me, at our place, 14-12, South Carolina. Just one of those deals you look at and you begin to think, man, you know, that's, that's one we, we wish we should have had. We could have had back. We go to Lexington and we beat Kentucky as we should, 28-16, and then we beat UT Martin 55-14. We lose at home to Alabama 24-7, a more competitive ball game 
but we just didn't have the horses. And then we get shelled again at Little Rock, 44-17. And then we absolutely dominate the Egg Bowl, 31-3. So we finished the year 6-6, six and six, and then we win the bowl game to give us that 7-6. and six. And I remember Vic Bauer having a big game in the Music City Bowl against Wake Forest. But again, you know, it's like we went out and scored a bunch of points, but it really wasn't, you know, a good indicator of what to expect, you know, the rest of the way. Because, again, we should probably beat Memphis every single time. 2012, another interesting year for us. We finished 8-5 overall. We, uh, we, we blast Jackson State 56-9. And then we get Auburn in here. You know, that was, uh, you know, that was the Gene Chizik. You know, that was when it all began to kind of fall apart for them. 28-10. And Tyler Russell had a big game for us, if I remember that one correctly. Then we go to Troy. Remember this? Bumpus has to make that acrobatic catch at the back of the goal line. And you know what? I don't know if they'd have had more cameras if, if that call goes our way. But, you know, Dan with some onions there. We go for it on fourth down. We win the ball game 30-24. And uh, we really struggled offensively to kind of slow those guys down. We beat South Alabama 30-10 the next week. And then we go to Lexington and we beat Kentucky again, as we should, 27-14. And then we beat Tennessee 41-31. And I remember Cordero Patterson just absolutely having a huge game for Tennessee. But the catch to Malcolm Johnson in the back of the end zone, it's like we were no longer the Mississippi State of old. There were so many times we would be real conservative. But we played for the win, and we won the ball game. And I remember how much fun it was to beat Tennessee. And even though it wasn't a great Tennessee team, and you know, we hadn't beaten them a whole lot in our history, at least in the modern era. And so it just kind of felt like it was a helmet sticker win for us. But it's like, you know what? How many Mississippi State teams in the past have just been intimidated by the, uh, you know, by the, the helmet sticker? Dan was beginning to teach our kids that we could win and play with anybody. We get middle in here again. We beat them 45-3. Then we go to Tuscaloosa, get drilled 38-7. We lose to Johnny Manziel. And then, of course, this is the we believe year, too, right? You know, we start the year and we're doing great. And, you know, some some Mississippi State fan, God love him, went over there and put a we believe shirt on the, the, the statue of uh, Bear Bryant at Bryant-Denny. Probably not the smartest thing to do. But they beat us 38-7. And then, you know, Johnny Manziel comes in here the next week. And that was just when Johnny Manziel was just becoming Johnny Manziel, right? I think we thought we'd bounce back and win the game. And we couldn't stop him. We absolutely could not stop him. I don't know if we were just kind of shell-shocked from the week before or it was a combination of that and the fact that Johnny Manziel was about to become one of the most electrifying players in the history of college football. It was an embarrassing game. And then we go and lose at Baton Rouge the next week, 37-17. So three consecutive losses after beginning the year undefeated. We beat Arkansas at our place 45-14. And then we go up to Ole Miss and get beat 41-24. And, again, that's a game, I tell you, in hindsight, we should have won. We had a multiple opportunities early in that ball game to win the game. Had a couple of picks early and just couldn't capitalize. And that was when they rushed the field. They hadn't beaten us in three years, and so they, they rushed the field. God bless them. And then we go on to back to the Gator Bowl, and we lose 34-20. Arguably one of Tyler Russell's worst games is a Bulldog. And I'm no way in beating up him. I'm a Tyler Russell fan, but I think he would tell you, you know, it just didn't work out the way we had hoped. We were a better team in Northwestern, but we didn't prove it. They beat us. All right, so we get, again, it's difficult to tell a lot of times about these uh, – these season openers, but I think this one, this one for 2013 was a little different because of the toll that it took on our team 
it kind of changed the trajectory of our season. You know, we got invited to that ball game to play Oklahoma State, their Reliant Stadium. We were excited to go do it. A lot of people, when Scott Strickland announced that game, people were like, why would we do this? It's so difficult for us to get bowl eligible. Why would we give away a, a non-conference game and go play on a neutral site? And so there was some criticism behind it. But a lot of people were like, hey, this is a good measuring stick for our program. We feel like maybe we had grown to the point we should go over there and compete and do a good job. And we didn't. But Tyler Russell gets hurt in the ball game and struggles with injuries the rest of the year. Kendrick Market is out for the year. I believe Justin Malone was out for the year. Nico Willie tears his ACL. We had four major injuries in the ballgame. And it changed the trajectory of the season. Dak Prescott, of course, had to uh, you know, kind of become Dak a little bit. You know, he was a part-time starter this year, but um, he wasn't ready for that Oklahoma State thing, having to go in and mop up. And I believe Tyler Russell had an ankle injury and a concussion in that ballgame. He tried to gut it through. We lose 21-3. Just couldn't get it going offensively. Then, of course, we drill Arkansas State, 51-7. Dak's first SEC start on the road at Auburn. And you know what? We lose 24-20. If Dak tucks it and runs on a third and short, we win the game. That's how close this game was. We absolutely should have won that ball game. But you got a freshman quarterback making his first SEC start on the road. You can't be too critical of that guy. But I thought it was a good job by our coaching staff. All things considered – we went over there and played really well. We drilled Troy 62-7 at our place, and then LSU gets us 59-26, a very forgettable ball game for sure. Bowling Green 21-20. And this is one of those we had to make a play late defensively. You absolutely had to. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, it was uh, Kendrick Market that made the play. Almost positive it was. Uh, then that Thursday night, we come back and we beat Kentucky and Starkville, as we should, 28-22. And, again, it was one of those things, too. The thing that I like about Mark Stoops, Mark Stoops is a good motivator, but he gives you so many different looks defensively. They run a lot of those odd fronts. And so it's difficult to prepare in a week. And this was a short week for us. And this wasn't a great Kentucky team, but – you know, we were kind of wearing, wearing down a little bit, and those guys were still trying to figure it out a little bit. But um, give them credit for coming in here and playing well. We go to Columbia, get drilled 34-16. to Miss Peggy Prescott died um, about 24 hours later. Dak Prescott comes back because the team needed him. Misses a couple practices, comes back and uh, says that he couldn't miss a game. His mom would never approve of that. We go to College Station and nearly won the game. We make a couple special teams plays there. If you remember, we gave up a couple special teams touchdowns. It was Johnny Manziel's final game at College Station, Texas, and Dak Prescott played just as well as he did. You remember Dak ends up getting the shoulder hurt, couldn't raise his arm for a while. It was crazy. But that's when I think we really realized what we had in Dak Prescott. He was such a warrior. And I remember so many of the Texas A&M players tweeting about Dak after the ball game, about how much respect they had for him and how much they were thinking of him and his family during that time. But Dak was becoming Dak. He wasn't Dak yet, but he was well on his way. We knew what we were working with. Tyler Russell comes back and plays, and um, you know Alabama beat him up pretty good. But he, he hung in there. It was a 20-7 ball game, a lot closer than most people expected. Then we go to Arkansas basically with the season on the line. You know, we're four and six with two to play. We had never in our history won a game 
in the state of Arkansas at any point in our history. We had never won in Arkansas. And we go and win this game, and I remember Tyler Russell just absolutely playing lights out in this ballgame. Ladarius Perkins made a very acrobatic catch and run to kind of get us back in it. We win the game 24-17. Tyler Russell, one of the last plays of regulation, he gets absolutely shelled, has a shoulder injury. We bring in Damian Williams. He scores on the first play of overtime, and then Tavez Calhoun picks a pass off to end the ballgame. To keep our bowl hopes alive, you know, the, probably the most significant play in that ball game is Nico Whitley stripping that ball out. You know, Alex Collins and those guys were trying to grind it down and go kick a, you know, a field goal to put it away, to put them up 10. And Nico strips it out. And next thing you know, we're in overtime. And maybe maybe maybe, maybe, they were, maybe the game was tied. I don't remember. But anyway, I just remember Nico saved the day. Uh, Thursday, we play Ole Miss. And you remember, this is a ball game, too. Uh, Ole Miss, they were supposed to be so good offensively. They were dreadful in this ball game. I, I, the Bulldog defense played exceptionally well. Damian Williams started the game. Dak, of course, comes in late. We win the game 17-10 in overtime. Nico Whitley, of course, with the big strip of Bo Wallace that's uh, become so famous on all the gifs out there. But we end up being 6-6. Six and six. But you go back and you look again, you know, you look at that Oklahoma State loss, and while I think Oklahoma State was probably, it was in my mind, probably a toss-up game, you know, the losses that we had in that game were so significant to the starting lineup that we ended up being up and down much of the year. And I give our coaching staff a lot of credit for keeping this thing in the road. And there were a lot of people that wanted Dan Mullen fired after this year. There were a lot of people that thought at the very least Dan Mullen should shake up his staff. They're like, oh, well, you know, we're kind of going, we could pay anybody to go be 6-6. Six and six. That's kind of how we felt. And then Dak Prescott happened in the Liberty Bowl. Dak Prescott goes out there. He and Jamion Lewis had a field day. Jamion Lewis set a uh, Liberty Bowl record receiving yards in a game. We went 44-7. And all of a sudden, we had some juice because at the end of the year, we kind of figured out, you know, Dak Prescott has everything that we want as a quarterback. Yeah, Tyler Russell, I love Tyler to death, but Tyler couldn't handle the running component of the Mullen scheme. And, and now that you guys know the Mullen scheme as well as you do, you look back and say, you know, Tyler Russell probably just wasn't, you know, wasn't a good fit. Les Kenny did a good job kind of tailoring some things around Tyler to give him an opportunity to, to kind of maximize his talent. But that Oklahoma State game, in many respects, I think that was a difference in a couple of games for us later in the year, to be quite honest with you. I think that's correct. But, we, yeah, we, we lose a couple guys in this ballgame uh, that were an issue. All right, so uh, we, we win the Rice game, of course, and uh, we had so much juice heading into 14 because we felt like we were kind of seeing the Dan Mullen offense running its, its full proficiency for the first time with Dak Prescott under center. And so we drill Southern Miss 49-0. And as bad as that game was, it could have been and probably should have been much worse. Dak had a couple of turnovers in that ball game. It threw one, one pick early in the ball game. Just, you know, just didn't get enough air under it. But it was 49-0. And I think we all felt, that's ah, pretty good. And then we come back the next week, and UAB absolutely shreds our secondary over and over and over and over again. And we win the game 47-34. But, again, all of a sudden, you know, the kind of the critics about, you know, Dan Mullen route again. 
it's like, how does this happen? You know, Bill Clark, of course, was still relatively new to the coaching profession as far as the head coach on the college level. And they out-schemed us. I mean, they absolutely did. They had a great game plan. They found a way to get their wide receivers and man-to-man coverage. Many times it's a one-receiver route, and they were still beating us. But we find a way to win. We do, 47-34. Then we go to Mobile and play down there. And I remember how incredibly hot it was down there with that turf. And they were so excited to get us down there. They thought they had a chance to win the game. They felt really good about their team. And then they didn't. We win 35-3. Dak has a big second half for us. It was a, kind of a tussle for a half. But we really got going there in the second half. And we're 3-0. and But a lot of people had a lot of question marks about this team. Especially headed to Death Valley. And we're going down to see LSU. And LSU, that, you know, a, lot, a lot of people were you know, kind of high on LSU back then. They had Anthony Jennings at quarterback. I was never high on Anthony Jennings. I didn't think he was going to be able to run any concepts that offense. But LSU is always recruited, you know, on a high level. They're always in the top five, top ten recruiting. So, you know, from an athletic po- point of view, they're going to be able to compete. And we go down there and we win the ball game 34-29. And, and you know, we – I think we kind of took our foot off the gas. You remember Dan's driving late, and rather than kick a field goal, we elected to just you know, run a dive on fourth down like we're not trying to run the score up, and they nearly came back and won. It goes back to the final play of the game. Bernard McKinney or Will Redman, I can't remember which one, makes a play just short of the goal line. I mean, it should never have come down to that. That, that was where you know Dan, Dan kind of melded in a little bit in that fourth quarter. But we win the ball game 34-29. All of a sudden, people begin to think that we're real – but many people in the national media began to suggest, oh, well, LSU was overrated. Mississippi State's 4-0, but it's a real flimsy 4-0. And even some of our own fans felt that way. Well, then Kenny Trill and Texas A&M came in. And you remember that, that was the highlight of the year early on when A&M just drilled South Carolina. People were ready to give uh, you know, Kenny Trill the Heisman Trophy after one week. And he comes to state, and we win 48-31. And, again, you know, we, we give up a couple of trash touchdowns late. This was an absolute blowout. We move into the top five in the country. Auburn comes in. It's a three-versus-two game. And we beat them 38-23. Jay Hughes, Justin Cox, all those guys have big games. You've seen the highlights so many times. Dak, Dronje Wilson, Malcolm Johnson. We had a really, really good team that year, obviously. We go to number one in the country. Number one in the country. It's a great moment for us. Then we go to next week to Kentucky, and we beat Kentucky as we should in Lexington, 45-31. Remember uh, Christian Holmes, Turtle, returns an onside kick to, to remove all doubt. Dak got beat up in that ball game, but was an absolute warrior. You know, Bud Dupree and those guys absolutely teed off, and uh, our offensive line struggled that game a good bit. Josh Robinson did run for, what, 198 yards? There was a big dispute between he and Dan Mullen because he wanted to get his 200 yards and wanted to go back in the ballgame. We didn't put him back in. I don't know that that fracture ever healed. Arkansas comes to our place. We're still number one in the country. You remember, they, they did a great job. They get up 10 nothing on us with the ball, and they're shortening the game on us. Brandon Allen thought had a good game. We come back and win. Of course, the, uh, the big blow for us is we hit Fred Ross. When they have a bus in the secondary, he runs in for a touchdown. Will Redman, of course, picks off the uh, – the last pass from Arkansas to win, and we survive again as the number one team in the country. Uh, the next week we get UT Martin, we drill them 45-16, and we go to Alabama, and Dak didn't have a great game. We had a couple of picks in plus territory. We lose 25-20. to And in hindsight, you know, 
even then we felt like we should have won the game. I remember talking to Dak when the, the FBS uh, playoff rankings came out, and you know we were all we were paired up. We would have seen Alabama again in the playoff. That's exactly what Dak wanted. Dak wanted Alabama again. We didn't get that opportunity, unfortunately. But and Alabama beats the number one team. One of the only times in their history Alabama had beat a number one team because they were normally number one. Uh, we drill Vanderbilt 51 to nothing, and then we lose at Oxford and, and removed any chance of us making the playoffs. You know, mathematically, we find out later we wouldn't have made it. Uh, but that was a big loss for us. And that's, that's probably the Jeff Collins thing. A lot of people say, you know what, this, is just not, this was not a good performance for us by any stretch of imagination. Um, you know, we have a couple linebackers go down, and, and um, you know, we just simply couldn't get it going. You know, and uh, I remember Will Redman blowing a tackle. I guess it was uh, Walton that broke loose. Uh, it was basically a, a check down to, to punt. It was third and forever. Next thing you know, it's a touchdown. There were a couple plays like that. You know, we just we didn't play well. And, and I'll be honest with you, I'm an old school kind of guy. You know, Bo Wallace is out there and, and uh, you know, with a bad leg, and I give him credit for kind of soldiering through all that. But I would have found out how mobile he was the very first play. I would have brought the house, even if it cost me 15 yards. I, I would have brought the house on the play. And, and kind of set a tone early. But we, we let him sit back there and pitch and catch a lot. And uh, to his credit, he won. He beat us. Bo Wallace beat us in the ballgame. And then we go to the Orange Bowl for the first time and since the 40s, and uh, we get beat 49-34. Of course, Jeff Collins is gone. He had left to make that lateral move to Florida. Uh, to Shea Townsend calls the plays, and uh, we absolutely couldn't stop him. Yeah, I guess the big highlight for us is we hit that Hail Mary right before the half – and it seems like that stuff never works, but it worked for us on that day. Go back and you look at the schedule. You know, we had the big win over Southern Miss, but I don't know that that was truly indicative of how great we were going to be. And we had that very flimsy game against UAB, and a lot of people thought, well, you know, this, there's no way this team's going to make it. And we ended up being number one in the country for a while and being in a New Year's Six game. And so, again, I don't know that – those early games were completely indicative of how good we were. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her personal foundation, says they're seeing more issues than ever with dogs' joints, odors, and their health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can all look to improve our dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that many dog foods are made in a way they can actually create toxins that could possibly be wrecking our dog's health. And that's true for many of the premium brands as well. Fortunately, she's found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step -step how any of us can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. I've got five dogs. I do. I love them. I spend most of my time with them. In fact, Mojo, my mama blue healer, has helped me write six and a half books now. I want her to be as healthy and happy as possible. So if you feel like you do about your dogs the same way I do, let me encourage you to go to badlandsfood.com forward slash boneyard and watch Catherine's video right now. And again, that's badlandsfood.com forward slash boneyard. Be sure and check it out and make sure your pet is happier and healthier than ever. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Word. I don't know if, if we knew yet how good we were going to be. At 15, we go down to Hattiesburg, and we struggle with Southern Miss. And then we win 34-16, but we really struggled early on. You know, they had the, with the fake punt, and then we had some turnovers early. I remember Ashton Shumpert fumbled going into the end zone, and uh, Fred Ross had a couple of big drops. We just, we just weren't in sync. It was just really a, a weird environment. And I remember there were so many people that were upset about uh, media down there like there were some southern miss people that were very upset about media suggesting that uh mike bonner and those guys were cheering for mississippi state i can assure you nothing's farther from the truth uh we lose to lsu a week later 21 19 a game again we kind of let get away from us uh we really struggled to block the pass rush early we figured it out late and we we missed a late field goal a game that would have won it and uh, what I remember the most about that, and, and then again, this goes on my one, is we're driving down and we take that stupid uh, you know, delay a game penalty that cost us so much. If you don't take that penalty, it's a much more makeable field goal. Still don't know how that happens. So we come back, we beat Northwestern State 62-13. We beat Auburn at their place 17-9, gave Miles with a good game. We lose at College Station 30-17. to Did not play well down there again. Troy comes back. We drilled them 45-17. We get Tech 45-20 at our place. We beat Kentucky and Starkville again as we should, 42-16. We traveled to Columbia, Missouri, a Thursday night game, poured down rain on us, and uh, it was kind of a, a, a generic atmosphere. It didn't feel like being in an SEC venue. Took us a while to get going, but we, get, we did. We did. We did get it going, 31-13. Uh, we lose to Bama 31 to six in that game. You know, while we competed for a half, I mean, there was we weren't any closer to Alabama. We go beat Arkansas 51-50, and remember that our Alabama game. I think we had ten. We, we give up ten sacks in that game. So we go to Arkansas. That's the Beniquez Brown game, right? That's when Dak Prescott and Brandon Allen just went head to head. It was a tremendous football game, and the coldest I think I've ever been was at that ball game. And uh, Beniquez Brown knives through and Brock's a field goal to win the game. One of the greatest games I've ever witnessed. I'm just so glad we came out on the right side of it. And then we lose uh, Dak's final home game against Ole Miss. And I remember this like it was yesterday. You know, everybody's all emotional and you look over there and the players are crying. Even some of the coaches are crying. You know, it's just, you know. And then the Ole Miss players are taunting the state sidelines. And then Chad Kelly and those guys absolutely took it to us. They, they had a different level of intensity that night. Chad Kelly won the game for them. Uh, the pick six that Dak threw to, to Tony Bridges, uh, you know, that was – he was their worst corner and we gifted him a touchdown. And we came and tried to make it a game late. But let's be honest, I mean, Ole Miss jumped on us in that ball game and we, just, and we never really com- recovered from that. Well, then we go to the Belk Bowl up in Charlotte, and we beat NC State 51-28, and that game was not close. They had Jacoby Brissett as their quarterback, and it just seemed like State was all over him from the beginning. Excited about that, to say the least. And that was a pretty good NC State team. Not a great team. That's a good – that's a solid team. 
2016, we open up with a loss to South Alabama, and that really was a harbinger of things to come. And, you know, i tell you who I blame for that ball game is Dan Mullen. I blame Dan Mullen because of the fact that we allowed the quarterback competition to linger into the season. Make a decision, Dan. And so we, we put take Nick Fitzgerald out of the game, put Damian Williams in. Nick had not had a bad series. And then we put Damian in, we begin to rotate. Nobody ever found a rhythm. And we lose 21-20. And so that one is completely on Dan. And then I remember Mullen telling us post-game, or that Monday, that he drove around on Sunday, went for a run, that sort of stuff, and cleared his head and said, you know what, we've got to go with Nick. And that created all this controversy among the fan base. And, of course, Nick Fitzgerald obviously uh, was a little better fit for the offense. But, you know, Damian Williams is a guy that got out there and competed for Mississippi State, and I, I've got no qualms with Damian. I just think Nick was the better quarterback, and I think the season kind of proved it. But this was a difficult year for us because of that. And, it, and again, it, it continued to happen. Uh, South Carolina, we beat them 27-14 at our place. It was a good win for us. And that was the first game I think Jamal Peters played at corner, had the big pick on the post play. We lose in Baton Rouge 23-20, but Damian Williams was the guy that kind of brought us back a little bit. And then that created a little more of a controversy, and then you have Dan's like, no, Nick's our starter. Nick's our starter, Nick's our starter. And he was. But it kind of began to divide the locker room a little bit. We go to UMass and play them in Foxborough. We beat them 47-35. But you remember, remember this was more than an, than an interesting game. They really took it to us, and I thought defensively it was one of our worst outings uh, of the Dan Mullen era. We just, you know, we just simply couldn't stop them. We play Auburn, get beat 38-14. That's when uh, their starting running back gets hurt, and they uh, they bring in that big bruiser. They just run all over us. We could, we were powerless to stop them. We go to Provo. And we lose in double overtime to BYU. And the, the play that I remember about this one is Will Coleman comes free and kind of inadvertently touches the quarterback's head. Didn't hit him in the head, didn't slap him in the head. And it gave him a first down and ultimately gave him the ball game. It's like the game would have been over there. I mean, if we don't touch a quarterback, the game's over. But the, the officials made a bad call. And listen, I know you're not supposed to, to, to hit the quarterback, all he did was graze the helmet. He just touched him. You know, Will's got to do better than that, too. But we lose. And, we again, we had a chance to recover a fumble. It was rolling around down there. Brinkwes Brown had a chance to get on it. We just we didn't see it. A.J. Jefferson had a chance to make a play. We, we just didn't do it. So we lose that ball game. And then we go to Kentucky. And we lose to Kentucky as we shouldn't. Nick Fitzgerald, of course, goes down late in the ballgame after throwing a pick six. We come back, and Nick takes us down. We take the uh, the lead. All we got to do is make a stop. You know, we get a, we get a bad case of sermonitis, and um, we don't rush a quarterback. We lose contain. They get loose, and then they kick that you know, career-long field goal to beat us 40-38, to and it was the first time they had beaten us, I think, since 2008. And it was bedlam in the place, media people, staff people it's like it was mardi gras up there we get samford at our place we beat them 56 41 if i'm not mistaken at the time we'd given up a school record in yards in that game samford absolutely lit us up peter sermon thank you we find a way to beat a&m 35 28 and you remember a&m was it was the number four team in the playoff that year in the rankings and then we, we find a way to win nick fitzgerald of course uh scores the first play of the game after a nice kick out block from farad green 
and had, uh, you know, if you remember, they had the, uh, the punt return just before the half where there was uh, two blocks in the back on the play, one right in front of the official, and they don't call it. That allowed them to kind of creep back in the ball game. But listen, Mississippi State was by far and away the better team that day. And I remember how empty the stadium was, but you guys missed a great game. We go to Tuscaloosa, we get drilled 51-3, and it's almost like we're just trying to survive at this point. We're just trying to survive. It, was, it seemed like we got we showed up at Alabama like 30 minutes before the game. That's how it felt. And the bus drives up, we get off, we go stretch a little bit, do some jumping jacks, and we just kind of go through the motions. But I think Nick Fitzgerald won the team over in this game because he kept getting hit and hit and hit and hit and kept getting up and kept getting up. We got beat. We got beat to death. But Nick Fitzgerald, I think, earned the respect of the locker room. The next week, Nick has a really big ball game, but we lose 58-42 because Arkansas doesn't punt. Thank you, Peter Sermon. When we had had the better of Arkansas, I guess, with four straight years, and then um, Peter Sermon gifts them a victory. And But we go to Ole Miss, we beat them 55-20. Uh, one of the greater days, one of the greater Egg Bowls uh, from a Mississippi State perspective. Nick Fitzgerald, it's a school record. Incredible. And so because of the APR stuff, there weren't enough bowl teams that year. We had the highest APR of the five and seven teams, so we got to go play in a St. Petersburg Bowl. We win the game 17-16 thanks to a late field goal block by Nelson Adams to win the game. And we end the year six and seven, but it was one of those things that was like we had endured so much that year. You know, we, we end up with the golden egg and a bowl win, and it's like you almost kind of forget how bad that year was. We were awful on defense. Awful. And then we bring in Ty Grantham the next year, and all of a sudden we're a better team. It's amazing what happens when you get when you have good coaches, right? So we play Charleston Southern, and you can't tell anything from that game. And, I, and to be honest with you, it was a 49 nothing ball game because we out-athleted them. Execution wasn't the highest, but we were, you know, again, kind of playing vanilla. Uh, we go to Ruston, and, uh, you know, we struggled in the outset there. J.M.R. Smith, of course, does a good, has a good job for them. Yeah, they're out there bowing us tooth and nail early on, and next thing you know, you know, we get Jeff Simmons scores a touchdown late uh, to kind of get the thing rolling. We win 57-21. We just kind of out-athleted them. But for a quarter there, we were in trouble. There were some people who even picked Louisiana Tech to win that game. Then we drill LSU at our place 37-7, the biggest Bulldog victory in the series with the Tigers. And everybody said, you know what? Mississippi State is the second-best team in the SEC behind Alabama. And we go to Georgia, and we get smashed, 31-3. to You remember the little flea flicker they threw on the very first offensive play? They get the safeties to buy it. It was kind of like in Todd Grantham's face, 31-3. We, we were not good. The next week, we go to Auburn. We get drilled again, 49-10. We were listless in that ball game. We get BYU at our place. We beat them 35-10. And you're starting to count games, and you start thinking, okay, can we – once we're through these difficult road games, do we have a chance to um, – you know, to get hot later in the year, and we did. We uh, we drill Kentucky 45-7, to as we should, and then we go down to College Station, one of the better games of the Dan Mullen era. You know, that it wasn't a great A&M team, but we had not played well down there, and we beat them 35-14. Remember, Jamal Peters had to pick six in the ballgame. Nick Fitzgerald with that really good game. UMass comes to our place. is Again, it's a lot tougher than it should have been, but we win at 34-23. Uh, I believe it was uh, – JT Gray with the pick six to kind of give us some breathing room there. 
Alabama beats us 31-24 in Starkville. Probably one of the worst fourth quarters Dan Mullen coached at Mississippi State. We let them off the hook. We had every chance to win the game. We played not to lose in the fourth quarter and ultimately lost. Ty Grantham brings uh, basically total blitz and zero coverage. Jalen Hurts beats us. We can't make a tackle in the open field. That's a ball game. Uh, we go back to Arkansas, beat them 28-21, and did not play well at all. Absolutely did not play well at all. But Nick Fitzgerald hits Reggie Todd late. We find a way to make things happen. Dedrick Thomas, of course, with a big touchdown catch at the goal line. And we win. And then we go to Starkville and uh, lose to Ole Miss 31-28. And, again, this is just this was the Nick Fitzgerald broken leg game. You know, completely different ball game. Nick wasn't playing well even before he got hurt. But a lot changed. We turned the ball over over and over and over again. Keaton Thompson kind of thrown into the action. If we don't turn the ball over, we win the game. But we did. And Ole Miss wins, to their credit. Brewin speaks, ejected at the end of the ball game. Uh, said a lot about their program, the way they behaved, that ball game. But you know what? They won. Dan Mullen leaves a couple days later, and then we go down to the Tax Slayer Bowl with um, Greg Knox as our head coach, and we win 31-27. Give those coaches a lot of credit. DJ Looney, that, that game meant a lot to him. Of course, DJ didn't get the opportunity to go to Florida. And so it was important for him to be committed to Mississippi State. He was and, um, you know, left here and ended up at UL Lafayette. God rest his soul. So we began the Jim Moorhead era with the 2018 season. We drilled Stephen F. Austin 63-6. Again, nothing you can tell from that. But I think we all felt, you know what, hey, offensively, we got some things figured out, right? I mean, we ought to be able to score. Feel pretty good about what we got working here. And then when Kansas State comes in, they hadn't been they hadn't really been good, right? <laughs> and uh, we go to their place, and uh, we felt like, you know what, it's a chance for us to go get a, an early win and uh, feel pretty good about life. And Colin Hill has a huge game, and people were beginning to talk about him potentially being a Heisman candidate. That was, uh, you know, Nick's first game back. And, and people say, well, he, he was injured. Well, he was suspended for the Stephen F. Austin game. And Keaton Thompson, you know, matched the school record for touchdowns counted for in the game. But then Kylan Hill goes off against Kansas State. Nick has a good game, too. And we feel like, you know what, we got some things rolling here. We knew defensively we were really good. It looked like offensively we were going to be good, too. So the Jim Moorhead era was off and running. We beat UL Lafayette 56-10 at our place. We're thinking things are great. We're 3-0, and doing what we want. We go to Kentucky and we get beat as we shouldn't, 28-7. One of the more undisciplined ball games that I have seen Mississippi State play. And that goes back years. A lot of huffing, a lot of pushing and shoving. And yeah, there was a couple calls that went against us that I thought were bad. But listen, by and large, those penalties, we earned every one of them. I thought Marcus Johnson's group got really beat up. Josh Allen from Kentucky goes off, Benny Snell. But listen, it was a it was a what fourteen to seven ball game in the fourth, and we quit. We did our worst showing of the year defensively was in that ball game, and give them some credit too. Uh, we lose to Florida thirteen to six, and this is when the bloom kind of fell off the rose with the Joe Moorhead era. I mean, it's like all of a sudden now we can't score. You know, we didn't been so good the first couple of weeks, and then we we couldn't score at Kentucky. We couldn't score against Florida, and of course. Uh, give um, Dan Mullen some credit. You know, we have uh, Jonathan Abram go out with a slight injury, and they go right at the walk-on safety with a double pass to give some separation. We should have won that game. We blew it. 
but Dan beat us 13-6. We get Auburn in our place to beat them 23-9. And you remember we had a couple plays at the goal line that were reviewed. Both went Mississippi State's way. Uh, there was one Auburn fumble that, that to this day that they, they say wasn't a fumble. He was hit from behind. Um, fumbles the ball forward. We recover it. We win the ball game 23-9. I mean, it wasn't like it was one play. We go to Baton Rouge. We get beat 19-3. Again, we can't score. This was this was when people began to really doubt the Joe Moorhead offense. And it's like, well, you know, we got Nick Fitzgerald running this scheme. Doesn't necessarily fit what we want to do at quarterback. And nobody would say it publicly, but that you know, that's kind of that was the perception. He's like, yeah, we're trying to build what we can around Nick, but we need a guy that can make those vertical throws and a guy that can throw outside the numbers consistently. And so they kind of wanted to hang this around Nick Fitzgerald's neck. So we beat A&M in our place 28-13. You remember Kellen Mond made the uh, the late interception throw to Errol Thompson in the end zone that kind of removed all doubt. Tech comes in. We beat them 45-3. We go to Tuscaloosa. We get, get beat 24-0. And this is the fake uh, block in the back penalty on Dedrick Thomas that nullified the Colin Hill touchdown. And then we had a couple other penalties that were very like, basically phantom calls. And listen, we lost 24-0. I'm not in any way trying to suggest that we got cheated out of a ball game. But this is the one, too, if you remember, that you know Harris has a fumble early on and Gary Green recovers it and they don't even review it. So you start beginning to stack these things up. You know that They had the fumble that we didn't get. You, you take a touchdown off the board. And uh, Jeff Batts, of course, was the official. And uh, I raised seven shades of uncharted hell about every bit of that stuff. And fortunately, the league did the right thing. You, you won't see Jeff Batts' name uh, mentioned I don't, I don't think he's refereed an SEC game since then. I don't think so. I, I didn't check it last year, but I know that the, he did not uh, in uh, 19. All right, so we, we uh, drill Arkansas and Chad Morris at our place 52-6, to six, and for some reason Joe Moore had always found a way to just absolutely just beat Chad Morris ungodly. And then we go to Oxford and beat them 35-3. to three. And if you remember, this is the game that uh, they had a little altercation with Joe Moorhead and Ross Bjork after the game. You know, about Ross out there popping off. And then all of a sudden, it's like, all of a sudden, Joe was our guy. You know, it's like, hey, this guy went up there and just beat old Miss to death. And then there's the whole flag planning thing and that sort of stuff. And now we've got to have a summit between the coaches. And, you know, it's just ridiculous. And, of course, we go out there and lose the Outback Bowl in uh, 27-22. We, we were not prepared to play in that ball game. Absolutely were not prepared to play. All right, it's 2019, something like this yesterday. In many ways, I guess it was. But, um, you know, again, we go down to New Orleans. We don't play exceptionally well. You know, UL running game really gave us some trouble. We find a way to win. Errol Thompson with a big play to kind of turn that game around. We win 38-28, the debut of Tommy Stevens. I think at that point people thought, you know what, hey, we've got our quarterback that fits the Joe Moorhead offense. And while he had a one really bad pick in the game, I think we felt like, okay, this is enough. We'll kind of get it going. We get Southern Miss the next week. He hits a couple of huge throws. That catch to Osiris Mitchell uh, right at the back of the end zone. You kind of showed that Tommy Stevens had the physical skill. And then he gets crushed on a couple of uh, corner blitzes as he rolls right into him. Has that AC joint sprain that lingered the rest of the year. Kansas State comes in. 31-24, 31-24, they run that unbalanced line against us. We just just simply couldn't stop it. Simply couldn't stop it. Still should have won the game. Still should have won the game. 
Garrett Schrader starts the Kentucky game. We beat them as we should, 28-13. And remember late in the ballgame, we needed somebody to make a play because we had all the juice. We had a couple of freshman moments. You know, uh, Garrett fumbles one away, throws a pick. But late in the ball game, he makes a play to put the game away. We win 28-13. We go to Auburn and get beat 56-23. The game was never competitive. Then we go to Tennessee, and uh, Tommy starts the ball game. If we start Garrett Schrader, we probably win. This is a Tennessee team that was pretty hapless at the moment. And we blew it. We get beat 20-10, and again, offense can't score. Really turned Tennessee season around. I don't think they lost a game the rest of the year. LSU gets us 36-13. Again, we can't score. We go to AM. Kellen Mond had a great game against us, and a lot of that was our own inability to execute on defense. We put up 30 points, but uh, really, wasn't, really wasn't a good game. We go to Fayetteville, and we beat Chad Morris in that group unmercifully again, 54-24. Could have been a, a much bigger deficit. We did what we wanted to do. Thought we ran the ball exceptionally well uh, in this ball game. Tommy Stevens actually had a good game. We lose to Bama 38-7. No surprise there. And then Abilene Christian, Tommy Stevens gets hurt again. Gets a chest injury. Gets cracked pretty good there. That kind of lingers on. We start Garrett Schrader in the Egg Bowl, and uh, he wins the game 21-20. Remember, that's that's the extra point. That's the uh, the golden miss, shall we say. And then we go to Louisville uh, and play them in Nashville, excuse me, in the, in the um, Music City Bowl. We had the lead at the half. Tommy Stevens kind of fell apart on us here. And defensively, we just didn't play well. We got absolutely you know, destroyed in that ball game in many respects. And I, and I thought that was, again, kind of the beginning of the end. Garrett Schrader unavailable, of course, due to the, uh, you know, the fractured orbital bone. Hated to see all that happen. We open up last year, again, uh, 44-34 winners against LSU, and I think we all began to think that all things were possible. Hey, you know what? This air raid thing is going to work for us. Well, it didn't work out for us after that, right? Because Odom and those guys put the drop eight together, and little did we know that K.J. Costello simply could not read a defense. We had wide receivers, had no clue what to do against that zone, and we struggled. We still should have won the game. As bad as we played, we still should have won the game. Had every opportunity. We talked about that one here a couple weeks ago. Uh, we lose at Kentucky 24-2. Looked absolutely ridiculous in that ball game. We throw six picks in the game. I think it was the first time Mike Leach offense hadn't scored. We lose to A&M 28-14 in Starkville. And, again, that's a game that was very competitive for a while. Manuel Forbes with the pick six. But, again, offensively we're still struggling. We get drilled by Alabama 41-0. Game not competitive in any stretch. Will Rogers starts against Vanderbilt. We win 24-17, and that's a game, too. If you remember, they, they couldn't stop us early, and we still needed a big play by Marquis Spencer late to put the game away. The Auburn game gets postponed. We go to Georgia. A lot of people are expecting us to get drilled. We have 49 players, and again, should have won the game. You know, we make one play defensively over the top. We win the ball game. We earned a lot of respect. I think a lot of people kind of got behind the team then. We go to the Egg Bowl, and we lose 31-24. You could, you could say we should have won this game. You could also say Ole Miss probably should have won it by a more comfortable margin. There were a couple times that uh, they should have kicked field goals, elected to go for it, and we stopped them. Missouri game gets postponed. We, we play Auburn. We lose 24-10. to 
Defensively, we actually played pretty well in that ball game. Then we drilled Mizzou 51-32 and win the Tulsa game. And again, just a good example of, uh, you know, the first game not really indicative of what to expect the rest of the year. Because even though we didn't play, you know, as best we could defensively in that ball game, you know, defense ended up being really good for us and offense began to really struggle. And so it just was not a good indicator of what to expect the rest of the year. And so I say all these things to say this is that, you know, one game does not a season make. No matter who it is or when it is. But when we play that first ball game, there's just so much that goes into that. You just never know. You Sometimes you have players suspended. You have some guys that are a little bit nicked up. Maybe you hadn't settled a lineup. And so I just thought, let's just go back and review some of this stuff too and kind of get our hands around it and kind of understand that, um, you know, last week is not necessarily an indicator of what next week should be. Okay, time for today's top 10 list brought to you by CloseWithBlair.com. That's B-L-A-I-R, CloseWithBlair.com. Listen, you got questions about mortgages, and Blair Chandler can take care of it for you. This guy's a pro, man. Been in the industry 21 years, one of the top 1% in close ratio in the country. Not just with Fairway Mortgage, but nationally. Blair, of course, works for Fairway Mortgage. That is uh, one of the top mortgage lenders in the country, one of the top five mortgage lending companies in the industry. Whether you're looking to buy a home for the first time or perhaps refile your current home, get a second mortgage, or maybe you want to invest in an investment property, Blair has answers to all your questions. Many of you perhaps have uh, thought, you know what, the dream of home ownership will never come true for me. I'm here to tell you there's nobody else better equipped to make that dream a reality than Blair Chandler. Blair is a bulldog, and I enjoy doing business with bulldogs whenever I can. They're trustworthy folks. Visit CloseTheBlair.com to get more information. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, if you just mentioned the fact in your correspondence of Blair that you heard about this ad on a Boneyard, you get your appraisal paid for. How about that? That's about a $300 value. There's a lot of expense that goes into this sort of thing. Anytime you can save a little money here and there, we're happy to do it for you. And just because I love you and Blair loves you, the appraisal is free for Boneyard listeners. How cool is that? Just by listening to the show. Just by listening to the show, you just mentioned, hey, I heard about you guys on the Boneyard. You get your appraisal paid for. If, listen, give Blair a call or text today. He's happy to talk to you. Uh, of course, you can contact him through the Contact Us link on CloseWithBlair.com, or you can call him on his personal cell phone, 601-500-2344. Again, 601-500-2344. Hey, get off the hamster wheel of renting, right, and put your money to work for you. Buy that home. Give your family a place they can always call home. That's CloseWithBlair.com. Okay, we continue with our series of My First Favorites. We did the 70s, we've done the 80s, now we're in the 90s. A great decade of music, man. I mean, really it is. And music was really beginning to change. You know, more of the alternative rock became more mainstream. And I had difficulty putting this list together. Now, I'm going off the Ultimate Classic Rock website, their top 10. They actually had a top 30. And one of the things that I don't like about a lot of these lists, like some of these music sites put together, it's like you can tell they're just kind of putting their own favorites in there. Guys, I'm going to tell you this. Okay, the Flaming Lips, not a top 10 rock band from the 90s. They were fun. They were. I'm not in any way, you know, talking about their talent. But they weren't a top 10 rock band in the 90s. There's some legendary bands in the 90s. Flaming Lips, not one of them. Nor would the Pixies. 
Sometimes I think we get a little bit too cool for our own good. Say, oh, you know, this band sold X million records, but let me put my friends in here that sold about 25,000 and a couple t-shirts. No, done, done doing it. All right, so I, I want to throw out a couple of honorable mentions that didn't make the list. The Red Hot Chili Peppers didn't make the list. I know right now many of you are saying, oh, Steve, how could they? Well, the Chili Peppers actually started in the 80s. And I had a Mother's Milk poster on my wall. And they covered higher ground and that sort of stuff. And then there was, you know, true men don't kill coyotes and all that. And so I think they're just kind of one of those overlapping bands that didn't really, uh, you know, meet the 80s criteria in the 90s. But I didn't want to record a show without mentioning them. I love the Chili Peppers. I love Anthony Kiedis. I love his story of recovery. I think they're an incredible band. They're a legendary, iconic band. And uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, one of the greatest albums of the era. It still holds up today. Also, Soul Asylum. They didn't make the list. I really like Dave Perner. Uh, Somebody to Shove is the song that really got me into them. And, of course, some of their bigger hits were ballads. You know, like Runaway Train is great. And in Black Gold, of course. But Somebody to Shove is the one that really got me into them. I, I dug that song a lot. All right, so here we go. Top 10 first favorites from the 1990s. Number 10, Jane's Addiction. I had the Nothing Shocking album. It was gifted to me uh, by someone. Said, hey, you might like this. It was much different than anything else I listened to, and I absolutely loved it. The song that really pulled me in for them was Mountain Song. Perry Farrell, a musical genius. Of course, Dave Navarro was a big part of all those early days. But... You know, Perry Farrell was also you know, a bit of an activist, but also, too, a proponent of art and uh, started Lollapalooza, really kind of changed music in many respects and gave a lot of these lesser-known alternative rock bands a venue and a forum to showcase their talent. So there's a lot of people that owe a lot to Perry Farrell and Jane's Addiction. Number nine, the Foo Fighters. I love the Foo Fighters. I, I do, and, of course, they got kind of got going in the late 90s, but I think they're – their influence on music uh, has to be recognized. The Foo Fighters are one of the few headliners in rock music today. The song that really got me in, and it seemed like it's been in every football movie uh, forever, it's My Hero. There Goes My Hero. Great tune, great track. Love Dave Grohl. Number eight, Pantera. We just talked about them. You know, Pantera really kind of came to prominence too there in the mid-90s. You know, a former hair metal band, as we discussed recently when we did the uh, the Pantera Top Ten list, you know, the song that kind of got me into those guys was Cemetery Gates because I thought, you know, this is this is a little bit different. But it was still kind of true to metal. I dug it a lot. Number seven, one of my favorite bands of all time, the Black Crows. Love the Black Crows. I have every album. And I, I hate that uh, Chris and Rich uh, have so much trouble getting along. Glad that they're out touring again. Hopefully they can kind of keep this thing in the road together for a while. But uh, Chris Robinson, one of the great front men, of this gener- front men of this generation. But the song that got me into him was the one from the very beginning. I love that uh, Shake Your Money Maker album, but the Jealous Again. Twice as Hard was a huge hit for them. I love that song too. But the very first time I heard Jealous Again, I said, this is something a little bit different. Seen the Black Crows in person uh, many times and uh, absolutely loved those guys live. One of the best shows I've ever seen. Saw them in Government Mule in Lafayette, Louisiana. And still remember that show, man. Just phenomenal, phenomenal show. Uh, number six, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Nirvana. I was not into Nirvana. And uh, I tried to get into Nirvana. 
and just didn't work out for me. I just didn't get it. I know many of you are huge Nirvana fans. I'm not going to speak negatively of you, of your music taste. I'm just not a Nirvana guy. I'm not. I don't think they're anywhere close uh, to most of the other grunge bands. I, I just, I, I don't. Uh, but Smells Like Teen Spirit was the one that kind of changed everything. And a lot of people got fired up about that. And what's interesting, too, most people don't know this, but uh, that the Smells Like Teen Spirit is not an anthem or an ode to Teenage Rebellion. Smells Like Teen Spirit is in reference to a deodorant that was very popular at the time. It was marketed to, uh, to teenage girls. Teen Spirit. See, we can't even talk about Nirvana on this show without a disturbance in the force. You see, it's, it's, just, it's just not consistent with my character. So I apologize for that. I don't know what happened, but the dogs, uh, there were, again, a disturbance in the force. So, so there we go. All right, so number five for me, and actually one of my favorite bands of all time, probably should be a little bit higher on the list, but there are so many bands in this top five that uh, I love the full catalog. But it's Alice in Chains. I love the Dirt album. I've got the Sap EP, everything. I have everything that Alice in Chains did with Lane Staley. I don't have all of the newer albums, um, but I dig it, man. And I always felt that Jerry and Lane were just such a great songwriting duo. And many of those songs that so many people attribute to Lane Staley's demise were written by Jerry Cantrell. He was experiencing some of the same issues. Both of those guys were very much into uh, narcotics. And ultimately, that cost Lane Staley his life. But the song that started it for me, like many of you, was Man in a Box. Absolutely love that track. It was unlike anything else on the radio at the time. Number four, Smashing Pumpkins. I love that Gish album. That Sammy's Dream both. Both of those albums really, really were a big part of the college experience for me. Much later, the Melancholy and Infinite Sadness came out. Those really those first three Pumpkins album to me are kind of iconic. There's some some other interesting stuff later in the catalog. But that's kind of what Billy Corgan and those guys kind of hung their hats on. The song for me, I think the first time I heard this, I was at Tal's Dart Bar, and it's I Am One off Gish. Number three, and many people consider this band to be the definitive band of the 90s, and it's Pearl Jam. You could say, Steve, the Noirthy number one. Well, I've got a couple bands I like a little bit more. So I kind of modified the ultimate classic rock list to kind of match my style. I love Pearl Jam. Loved Eddie Vedder from the very beginning. Went back and got into Mother Love Bone after I got to know Pearl Jam and the, the, all that Temple of the Dog stuff. But the, the song for me, that my, my very first favorite from them was Alive. I, like many of you, Even Flow, of course, kind of got it started. But Alive was the one for me. I, I just thought, you know, because of that point in my life, I guess, because I was young in recovery, and it was kind of anthemic to me. And I thought, you know, I'm just so glad to still be alive. I'm just so grateful to have life and breath to breathe and uh, people to love me. And so that song meant a lot to me at a very difficult time in my life. Number two, I want to thank uh, a friend of a friend. There was a buddy of ours. So my, my college roommate was a guy named Jim Winter from Jackson. And Jim, one of his best friends growing up, was a guy named Reeve McNamara. I've met Reeve and uh, Patrick Hogan, that whole little crew there. there was, it was a very diff- different group, for sure. They are very eclectic. But Reeve is the first one that turned us on to Rage Against the Machine. You know, those kids in Jackson sometimes knew things before we did. You know, if they didn't play it on the radio in Hattiesburg, we didn't know about it. But Rage 
was kind of an underground band at the time. And Reeve hooked us up with a bootleg cassette of a raid show. And it really kind of changed the direction of music. Kind of ushered in what many people considered new metal. I just think Rage is one of those bands that kind of transcends the genre. But for me, it was Bomb Track, right out of the gate. I love every song on that first album. I have everything in the Rage catalog. And I'm proud to have been part of that generation, to be honest with you. It's like, you know, Rage was a band that um, they didn't take prisoners really on either side. I don't necessarily agree with all Tom Morello's politics. But, you know, they played before the Democratic and the Republican National Convention because they wanted our generation's voice to be heard. And so I'm always kind of grateful for that aspect of it. They, they were a much more socially conscious band than many others. And it caused a lot of young people to think. You know, because the 80s was all about nothing but a good time, right? And I, I think when we got into the 90s, things got a little more serious and sometimes more depressing. But Rage was one of those bands that I think really kind of stoked the fire in us as young people. But number one for me, one of my favorite bands of all time, and I think the best band of the 90s, I think their, their catalog is so much more diverse than even Pearl Jam. And I think uh, he is the, one of the greatest singers of all time. It's Chris Cornell and Soundgarden. And so I got into Soundgarden very, very early because of the fact, you know, Guns N' Roses was like one of the first big proponents of Soundgarden. It's interesting, too, because they, they were so, such a contrast in styles. But um, you know, Soundgarden and Guns N' Roses very, very you know, linked because of Axl Rose's interest in the band. And I remember when they debuted the video for the song Hands All Over. It really changed. I thought, who in the world is this guy singing? This is so different from anything else. Little did I know that Chris Cornell would write kind of the soundtrack of my life in many respects. And so uh, I miss Chris and uh, miss his music. But that's it for me. Hands all over. That's the first favorite from Soundgarden. Hope you guys enjoy the list. I, this is a tough one. It really is because there are so many. I, the 80s and 90s were just so many great rock bands. And then, and then you listen to the music and there's just such a contrast between the two. It, it's just once we flip the calendar over, I would say right around 91 92 alternative rock kind of took the place of arena rock and kind of hair metal in many respects and some would say you know for the betterment but what's interesting is you know many of those bands uh from the 80s are out touring again and uh playing in sold out arenas and a lot of these bands from the 90s are not but that's your top 10 list today if you've got an idea for the top 10 list reach out let me know i'm happy to do it we'll go back to the first favorites of the 2000s on Friday show. Look forward to that. A lot of great rock bands. I, I, and actually, we talk about great decades. You know, I think that the early 2000s was a weird time in rock music, but there were some really great bands that came along uh, during that era. Next segment of the show brought to you by Campus Bookmark. Stan and Man, Miss Kathy Brown, lovely, talented Susie, everybody up there will take care of you as well they should. You're the Bulldog customer. They know that. They recognize this. We talk about customer service being a bit of a uh, dying art form. Not there. It's like going home, man. You walk in there and it's like, hey, it's like, you know, walking in a cheers. Everybody's happy to see you. They're glad that you came in and, and uh, spent some time with them. If you can't make it to town to see them, let me encourage you to visit them on the World Wide Web, courtesy of Al Gore's Internet at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Boneyard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays, BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Robertson. And that'll get you free shipping on all orders, over 50 bucks, any order less than 50 bucks, absolutely incomplete. It's going to be hoodie weather soon, Mom. 
So let's go ahead and outfit all the school kids with these uh, Mississippi State hoodies. Let everybody know what we stand for, you know. Get some NAFL championship gear, put it on them. We can celebrate that around the year, around the decade, uh, for the rest of our lives, and we certainly shall. Again, that's campusbookmart.net, promo code BSR. Let's talk a little bit about NC State. Kind of get ready because we're going to – we're going to get into some things this weekend if we kind of preview the uh, the SEC slate. But uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I had a chance to um, you know to kind of go through the uh, Dave Doring press conference yesterday, and um, you know Dave's an impressive guy. I mean, he really is, and it's one of those things too. You, you go, you pull things up, and you look at it, and you begin to realize there are a lot of people out there that um, you know, have a lot of respect for North Carolina State. Now, they haven't been, you know, great, but they have been a solid program, you know, for a long time. You know, we mentioned earlier, when we played them back in 2015, you know, I think this is a program, too, that is in many ways kind of a mirror of our program. You know, we're a solid bowl team most years. Some years it's a lesser bowl. Some years it's a Florida bowl. But, you know, Dave Doring has made NC State a very consistent, consistent program. And, uh, again, I've got some respect for them just as they do for all of us. But um, this is a game when the schedule first came out. I said, you know what, it's probably a split-type situation. You know, we'll, we'll split with them. They'll split with us. We'll kind of see how it breaks loose. But, uh, you know, so since Dave Doreen has been there, you know, year one was 2013. Uh, they go 3-9 and the first year. They bounce right back in 14, go 8-5, and five, win the St. Petersburg Bowl. We've been there. 15, they lose to us after a 7-5 and five regular season there in the Belg Bowl. They bounce back and go 6-6 six and six in 16, win the Independence Bowl over Vandy to finish 7-6. and six. 17, they go 8-4 and four in a regular season. They beat the Arizona State Sun Devils pretty well, 52-31 in the Sun Bowl to finish the year 9-4. and four. 18, a 9-3 and three year, the high mark of the Dave Doring era. They go 9-3 and three and then they lose to A&M. Uh, in the Gator Bowl, got absolutely trounced in that game, 52-13. So they finished the year 9-4. 2019, they go 4-8, and eight, but they bounced back last year with a 7-4 and four regular season, and then they, they – excuse me, an 8-3 and three regular season, and they lose to Kentucky. So this is a team you know, that's got some juice after last year. But, again, there has not been these peaks and valleys with NC State – like maybe they were in uh, under previous coaching staffs. I mean, you know, I guess you know Chuck Amata had some good years there, uh, but you know, by and large, they have kind of been that seven and eight win type team, very similar to Mississippi State. So, talent differential wise, we should be pretty comparable. Uh, I think everybody kind of sees it as such. I don't think anybody believes there is a big differential uh, in talent between us and and the Wolfpack. And even looking at their fans, I think many of them kind of see it the same way we do. This is going to be one of those games that's going to boil down to who makes the biggest mistake. We have, we have some history with these guys, too, as you guys are well aware. I believe it's six meetings. Let me double-check that to be sure. I believe it's six meetings. I believe we're three and three. Yeah, we are three and three against them, of course. And uh, most of those games uh, in this generation have come in bowl games. You know, we, we've played them three times since 1963, and all of those have been in the postseason. Of course, the most recent one being back in 15. As I mentioned on Monday's show, this will be just their second visit to Starkville, Mississippi. Just their second one. All right, so let's get into the two, uh, some of these, what kind of what happened last week with them. 
45 nothing winners, and they did not record a sack, which is interesting. They run a 3-3-5 scheme similar to us, but uh, had trouble getting the quarterback on the ground. Let's look at some individual numbers here. Uh, Devin Leary, 17 of 26 for 232 yards, two touchdowns and one pick, and uh, 51 of those 232 yards came in one play. So, you know, average attempt, not really a big one. Not a big average. Uh, Zonovan Knight, 16 carries for 163 yards. Ricky Peterson also runs for 105, so they have two backs that go over 100. And, of course, you know, you're going to be a lot run heavy in the second half of a blowout game. But they were able to play a lot of people, got four running backs in the game to kind of save some wear and tear. But they ran it 40 times. They threw it 26, but they were run heavy. And is that indicative of what we can expect from a balance from them, or is that just simply play calling kind of dictated by the score of the game? I would suspect it's more of that. I think, you know, you run it late to kind of prevent running the game, the score up, but also, too, to kind of shorten the game a little bit. Uh, Amike Imazi was uh, five – I don't know, I hammered that name, so forgive me. Five catches for 71 yards. Devin Carter, one for 51. Not a touchdown, just so you guys know. And uh, so they're checking it out to the backs a little bit too. Ricky Person, uh, three grabs for 43. And so, you know, not a guy – there's not anybody on here you look at and say, okay, this is definitely the go-to guy. They spread the ball around, which makes them a little more difficult to defend. Uh, defensively, Drake Thomas with eight tackles to lead the team also had an interception in the game. Uh, that's something to kind of be mindful of. Drake Thomas, a uh, sophomore linebacker out of Heritage High School in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Guy suffered a uh, suffered torn pack last year. Pretty crazy. All right, looking at some other guys here. It's, it's interesting, too, that everybody's websites, you know, when you kind of go and look for all this stuff, not as similar as you might expect. Uh, Cyrus Fagan with seven tackles for them, also with an interception for 16 yards. Yeah, running through these numbers here, you know, the, the three picks, that makes a big difference in the ball game, right? I mean, you know, when you win the turnover battle, chances are you're going to win the game. Not always the case is we didn't win it last week and still found a way to win the ball game. But, uh, you know, tackles for loss is a unit, you know, not exceptionally big, you know, um, with two, three, four, five, six, six and a half, seven tackles for loss. Uh, so a respectable number there. But, you know, Again, not a lot of this – there's not just like one guy that jumps off the page at you and say, okay, we've got a game plan against this guy. With this scheme at 3-3-5, you know, we'll understand the basic concepts of this. And, you know, as you guys know, it is a very linebacker-friendly scheme. So you've got to make those linebackers be, be honest. Now, they did get to the quarterback a lot as far as hurries go. They pressured the quarterback. They were never able to get him on the ground. Uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven quarterback, eight, nine, ten quarterback hurries. So they were able to get, you know, in his face a little bit, just couldn't kind of get him finished. But um, did a great job, I guess, defensively as a team. They allowed just 15 first downs, seven of those on the ground, six uh, passing, two by penalty, just three penalties in the game, if I remember correctly. They run for 104 yards, uh, did South Florida. They lose 30 yards <laughs> rushing. And some of it, of course, is, uh, you know, those, those TFLs we talked about. They threw for this – they were 14 of 33 for 167 yards and three picks. Average attempt for USF, 5.1. Average attempt, 
for NC State, 8.9. That number sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Total offense for South Florida, 271. NC State, 525. So big difference there, big disparity. And listen, South Florida is not expected to be a very good team this year. They did a decent job punting. Eight punts, average of 45.1 punts, had a couple over 50-plus. Interesting, to say the least. The only kickoff they had was the one to open the half because, of course, they didn't score. But NC State, obviously a solid team, expected to win that game, probably a little more impressive than people expected. And it wasn't like just some one-quarter explosion. You know, 10 in the first, 14 in the second, 14 in the third, and then they kind of coasted there in the fourth uh, with the reserves kind of carrying the weight there. But, uh, listen, this is a quality opponent for us. And we're going to have to play better. I think we all know that. That's not being negative. That's just the reality of it. We didn't play well, but we found a way to win late because we, we caught the mojo in the fourth quarter. We're not going to be able to depend on some you know historic comeback there in the fourth. But looking back at NC State last year, and it's difficult to kind of carry over season to season, but they were a team that, you know, that kind of gave up some points last year. Uh, they beat Wake Forest 45-42 last year. Then they lose to Virginia Tech uh, 45-24. They beat Pitt 30-29, to so you see what I'm kind of going with. It's a lot of these games, they're giving up a, a lot of points. Uh, they, they beat Virginia 38-21 and Keaton Thompson. Uh, they beat Duke 31-20, even though Duke has not been very prolific offensively. North Carolina put up 48 points in a 48-21 win. Miami put up 44-41. to Florida State 38-22 winners. Liberty, believe it or not, 15-14. How about that? They beat Syracuse 36-29 and then uh, beat Georgia Tech to end at 23-13. Georgia Tech's a bit of a mess these days. Uh, but the bottom line is this is a defense historically, at least in recent history, that has, has given up some points. It's going to boil down to this. we got to go out there and execute and not turn the football over. And if, and if, that's, if we can do that, we're going to win. If we don't go out there and turn the football over, we're going to win a football game. And if we go out there and we get cute, and, uh, you know, we kind of go in our shell a little bit. This team is capable of scoring some points against us. I don't think there's any question. But, again, you know, talking to some people in college football circles, I'll tell you, South Florida really not expected to do much this year. The expectations for them uh, not good at all. And, and you know, kind of like with us, you know, how much can you tell from one game? Probably not a whole lot. But at the end of the day, it's a 45 nothing win, and those players believe that they're playing well, and they believe that, you know, defensively we've, we're improved than we were a year ago. And confidence is a difficult thing to beat. When you have teams that are ready to roll and teams that believe in themselves, you know, belief is a difficult thing to beat. Like, and here's the thing, too, just to kind of illustrate this. South Florida was 1-8 last year, 1-8, and, and the only win was a non-conference game. Of course, Charlie Strong was there the year before, four and eight. And so this is a program that's kind of in decline. And so, yeah, you would expect you know, a decent SEC or ACC team to be able to, to get after those guys pretty good because they're not used to winning. So as great as that score looks, 45 nothing, you kind of got to take it with a grain of salt. It's because of the fact that, I mean, South Florida, not expected to be very good. And some would say, well, Steve, Louisiana Tech's not expected to be pretty good. You know, Tech's expected to be a winning team this year. They're expected to be in a bowl game. And, like, I, I, I read the self-loathing Mississippi State fan commentary sometimes. Oh, but they're a bottom-half team in, in, the, uh, in CUSA. That's just – that's not accurate. But, yeah, the season will kind of play, the, the, play it out. But the bottom line is we don't play Tech again. They don't play South Florida again. We play each other. 
And so we look forward to a good ball game. And uh, one of the things I would encourage to do, and I know you guys are really good about this stuff anyway, is, you know, when, when these uh, NC State folks get here, you know, how about a handshake or a fist bump and say, hey, welcome to Starkville. You know, I always feel like, that, you know, fans are our greatest ambassadors, and you guys do such a great job making people feel welcome. But, you know, I think in many respects we probably feel some sense of connection with NC State. We're both kind of land-grant schools, but also, too, those guys really pulled for us in the College World Series, and I know we all really hurt for them. And, and to be honest with you, I wanted to play NC State, not just because of the fact that I thought that uh, you know, we could beat them. I was worried about Vanderbilt. But, um, you know, I think it's good for the game. NC State has never won an AFL championship. We hadn't, and I would be guaranteed that. And, you know, it's like if we were going to lose, I would have much rather lost to NC State than Vanderbilt. I don't want Vanderbilt to win anything in baseball again. But I heard for those guys, and I heard for those, uh, those fans – because they didn't really get a chance to compete. And uh, as great as our Omaha experience was, you know, theirs was diminished by what happened there at the end. And uh, really through no fault of uh, many of their own. And so let's welcome those guys to town and uh, make the entire group feel welcome. And uh, I heard, I haven't confirmed this, but I've had some people reach out and said that some of the NC State baseball players are actually making the trip. And I think that's really, really cool. And so uh, hopefully they're a good chance to hang out with some of our guys and have a great experience here and, and then watch their team lose a football game and go back home to Raleigh and get ready for fall baseball. But, um, again, really, really excited about this game and these guys coming to town. And, again, of all the non-conference games, this is the one I think we've all been the most worried about because these guys are certainly capable of beating us. But if we go out there and take care of the football, I believe we win the ball game. All right, final segment of the show brought to you by Portico. I've told you guys before, if I was moving to Starkville now, that's where I'd move. I would. There's no question. Being that close to campus, but also kind of far, far enough away where I can have some privacy, close enough for convenience, but uh, not really in the hustle and bustle and the flow of 12, right? Right off of 12, you turn off of 82 on a 12, like going to campus. You take that first right on Pat Station Road, takes you across on West Point, Boomer's Portico. That's how close it is, 1.1 miles from campus. You can get a two-bedroom, two-bath house up to a four-bedroom, four-bath house, whether it be your primary residence or an investment property or perhaps an investment property for yourself where maybe it's a, it's a home away from home during game days, but also to your Airbnb it uh, when you're not using it. And there's a lot of people that do that. So maybe that's something you should look into. I would rather you be here year-round. We love it here. I love it here. I know my kids love it here. And it's not just because Mississippi State is here. The people here are just so great. Uh, even if Mississippi State wasn't here, I'd want to be here because people here are just absolutely outstanding. And, and that's, that's kind of the little secret that I think most people don't realize is how great Starkville is year-round. Make Starkville your home by calling Portico and uh, speak to our good friend, Brooks Bryan. He's my friend, your friend, a friend of Mississippi State baseball. Former Diamond Dog, Brooks Bryan, once robbed a home run to send us to Omaha. I'm a Brooks guy, man. I gotta admit though that uh, I was really more of a, I was really more of a Brian Weiss fan, Brooks. I mean, I like Brooks too, but, but Brian was my guy. 601-416-8075. Again, that's 601-416-8075. That's Brooks Bryan, Brooks Bryan of uh, Portico. He'll answer all your questions. All right, so we're not doing a hero today because I want to give you guys some information. I know we have had some uh, threads over on the jeanspage.com message boards. And, um, and so 
there have been you know some concerns i guess about game day and there are a few things that i i've reached out to a couple people and said hey listen you know i've read some of this stuff i've heard some of this stuff sitting on social media what what can we do to kind of communicate some things that maybe fans can do to kind of help uh kind of move things along and so as you guys are aware one of the first things that i want to mention is uh like the uh, the metal detectors okay that is an sec rule that's not Mississippi State just trying to add an additional hurdle. And so one of the things that I witnessed uh, Saturday when I was going in, I was late going in just because I was out visiting with some of you guys, is that, like, you know, there's a, there's a, a bank of those metal detectors. As I'm getting ready to go in, it's like there's a line for the first, like, two metal detectors, and nobody's going, like, three and four. And, like, the workers are trying to motion people over, but they kind of got their head in their phones. They're not really paying attention. And so it kind of slowed the line down a little bit. And so I just let's just be aware when we get up there. It's like, hey, there's – I think on our side there's like eight metal detectors right there, and all of them are working. They're, they're all staffed. And so when you step up, don't just kind of follow the herd into line, lanes one and two. So just be kind of be mindful when you get to that, you know, to, when it's your time. Another thing that I've been told, you know, electronic ticketing. Okay, and so – and again, this is not in any way blaming anybody. I'm just trying to make sure that you understand to, to make it better for you and the rest of the, your Bulldog fans. Go ahead and pull up your electronic ticketing before you get to the stadium. Put it in your wallet or whatever. Just have it. Go ahead and have it handy because here's what we, we've heard. is on Saturday, it's like people are in line and it's like, oh, I got I to get, get my tickets. got to get my tickets. Go ahead and have that done. Because we're seeing things kind of bottleneck. It's already enough, you know, there's, there's already a few things you got to go through, right? You got to go through the metal detector and all that kind of stuff, and then you got to get, you know, get your ticket scanned. Well, let's go ahead and have that ready. Go ahead and, and before you even get out of the car, go ahead and pull it up and have it ready, or at least when you're in the junction or whatever. So if we can take care of that prior to getting in line, that's going to make things flow better for you, for me, and everybody else trying to get into the stadium. It's a big part of things. You know, also of note, too, I mentioned this on the show several times, too, the cashless transactions. Okay, we have been cashless on the Mississippi State campus for athletics now for two years. And this is all, you know, COVID-cautious type stuff. And so there was, there was a multiple incidents last week where people show up and for some reason don't have their debit card or prefer to pay with cash. So it, it's not the people running the concession stand that are they're trying to inconvenience you this is a safety issue whether you agree with it or not this is how it's been done all transactions all transactions at uh duty noble field were cashless this entire baseball season and i know there are a lot of people that maybe don't come to baseball games and didn't get go to football game last year and so they're unaware of this but you cannot pay with cash at a Mississippi State concession stand. You can't. It's not anybody being difficult. That's the policy. So bring your debit card, which I think would be an easier deal anyway. Bring your debit card and go through that. And then understand, too, I mean, let's let's take a little personal responsibility, okay, for ourselves here. Let's make sure we understand that, you know, if we get there, if we've forgotten, you know, we're not going to be able to go up there and kind of force the issue, they are not going to take your cash. They're, they're not going to do it. I mean, this is the world in which we live in now, and it's not their fault. Then that frontline employee is doing the best they can. Listen, we had some situations last week where you had 
you know, Bart Gregory and Eric George and a lot of people from the athletic department that were manning concession stands trying to improve the experience because the bottom line is, you know, there's this worker shortage in the country right now. There are a lot of people that don't want to work. And so those people are doing jobs really that, that are not necessarily within their job description, but they're trying to em- enhance the fan experience as best they can. And so please, just a little patience there. But again, there, there's a couple things that you can do to make things go a little bit easier. Look for open metal detectors and don't just kind of get funneled in with the crowd. Have your ticket ready. Have your ticket already pulled up on your phone. Go ahead and make plans to do that. Put it in a wallet. Have it ready before you get in line. And then, of course, to understand that it's a cashless transaction. And so if you come up and try to pay cash, they're going to tell you no, and you're going to argue, and then everybody behind you is going to be like, what's this dude's problem? This has been this way for two years. So it's just important for everybody to kind of work together here to kind of make, you know, listen, it's a small thing. But you know what? If everybody does one or two of these small things, it makes it better for everybody. And so I just share that because I think it's important. I want to get you guys information when we can. So I hear you. There are a lot of people like, I see you guys complaining. And even though maybe perhaps you didn't complain to me, I want to get on the phone and try to get you guys some answers so we can kind of move things along as best we can. And listen, I can tell you too from talking to people in the athletic department, you know, people, they, they read your emails. They're well aware, and we're not going to be able to make everybody happy, but there are some things that people have, some constructive criticism uh, that is well-received and will be implemented. I mean, listen, nobody in the Bryan building or on this Mississippi State campus wants you to have a bad time. Everybody wants you to come here and enjoy coming to ball games, and then leave here wanting to come back. I mean, it's a huge part of the experience is being able to come to game day and have a great time. And so there's a few things that you can do to help, but there are a lot of things that the athletic department are doing to kind of enhance the experience for you guys is too. So I understand you're being heard. I mean, it's not like people are oblivious to what's going on. So just kind of understand that uh, you're trying to every week get a little bit better with every bit of that. All right, that's going to do it for today. Thanks so much for your support. I want to remind you guys too, if you hadn't done so, go to dogpilethebook.com, D-A-W-G-P-I-L-E, thebook.com, and pre-order your copy of Dogpile. Went live yesterday. We've already sold several hundred copies. Thank you guys so much. Probably sell a few thousand before Christmas. And let me remind you guys, too, if you want to guarantee you get one for Christmas, you better pre-order. I can't tell you what's going to happen once it gets in the hands of the bookstores, uh, but it's going to sell quickly. And so there are even some bookstores that are pre-selling the book, kind of in anticipation of all this happening. But if you want to make sure you get a signed and or personalized copy, go through dogpiledthebook.com. And you can get that taken care of. It'll be released early November. Uh, layout, I believe, is finished. They're just kind of finalizing some pictures. And then this bad boy is going to print. Uh, so you order, guarantee you get one. Again, it's dogpiledabook.com. While you're there, you can find all the other books, too. You can, Everything but Blooms of Oleander, where you got to order out through Amazon. But while you're on Dogpile the Book, if you want to get Flim Flam or Alpha Dogs or Stark Villains, it's all right there. And if you want it personalized, there is a note section. Like when you get ready to finalize it, any special instructions, put how you want your book signed. And uh, I appreciate everybody's support all these many years. That's going to do it for today. We'll see you guys on Friday. Until next time, let's all live our lives and we'll make more friends and enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. 
in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans. Like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.